is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. And we'd love to hear them. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. You are the hour in Our American Stories. And it's time now for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what this Rule of Law thing is and what happens when it's absent or present in our lives. Today's edition comes from a Wisconsin father named Michael Bell. I got a phone call at 2 a.m. on November 9, 2004. It was my oldest daughter, and she said, Dad, you need to come to the hospital right away. Michael's been shot. When I arrived, I saw that the district attorney was huddled with about five police officers. The last time I saw my son alive was on a gurney. His head was wrapped in a big towel and blood was coming out of it. I had learned that an officer had put a gun directly to Michael's right temple. The gun misfired and then did it again, and this time he shot him. From the beginning, I cautioned patience, though Michael's mother and sister were in uproar. But as an Air Force officer and a pilot, I knew the way that safety investigations are conducted. And I was thinking that this was going to be conducted the same way, yet within 48 hours I got the message. The police had cleared themselves of all wrongdoing. In 48 hours, they hadn't even taken statements from several witnesses. Crime lab reports showed that my son's DNA or fingerprints were not in any gun or holster even though some of the police involved in Michael's shooting had claimed that Michael had grabbed his gun. The officer who killed my son, his name was Albert Gonzalez. He is not only still on the force at 10 years later, he is a licensed um, concealed gun instructor down in the state of Illinois. The Chicago Tribune uh, did an investigative story uh, and he was listed as one of the multiple instructors with documented histories of making questionable decisions about when to use force. From the beginning, um, I allowed the investigation to proceed. I didn't know it was a sham until many of the facts were discovered. But before long, I realized the cover-up was underway. I hadn't understood at first how closely related the DA and the police were. During his election campaign for judge, the DA had been endorsed in writing by every police agency in our county. Now he was investigating them and it was a clear conflict of interest. I wanted to uncover the truth and so our family hired a private investigator who ended up teaming with a retired police detective to launch their own investigation and they, they discovered that the officer who thought his gun was being grabbed in fact had caught his gun on a broken car mirror. The emergency medical technicians who arrived later found the officers fighting with each other over what had happened, and we ended up filing a 1,100-page report detailing Michael's killing with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney. It took us six years to get a wrongful death lawsuit settled, and our family received $1.75 million. I wasn't satisfied. By a long shot, I used my entire portion of that money and much more of my own to continue a campaign for more police accountability. I wanted to change things for everyone else so no one else would have to go through what our family did. And we did our research. In 129 years since police and fire commissions were created in the state of Wisconsin, we could not find one 
single ruling by a police department, an inquest, or a police commission that a shooting by a police officer was found unjustified. There was one shooting we found in 2005 that was ruled justified by the department and an inquest jury, but additional evidence provided by citizens caused the DA to charge the officer. The city of Milwaukee settled with a confidentiality agreement in that particular case and the facts of that remain sealed and the officer involved and eventually committed suicide. So you can see if there's a problem. To me, the problem over the decades, in other words, was a near total lack of accountability for wrongdoing. If police on duty believe they can get away with almost anything, they will act accordingly. As a military pilot, I knew that if law professionals investigated police-related deaths like, say, the National Transportation Safety Board investigated aviation mishaps, that police-related deaths would be at an all-time low. And so, together with a number of other families in Wisconsin, I launched a campaign in Wisconsin legislation calling for a new law that would require outside review of all deaths in police custody. I contacted everybody. I mean, in the beginning, I contacted the governor's office, the attorney general's office, and the U.S. attorney for Wisconsin. Didn't even bother to return my calls or, or letters. And then I went further. I contacted Oprah, every Associated Press Bureau in the nation, every national magazine, and every news agency, and I didn't hear a word. But I reached out to Frank Serpico, the famous uh, retired New York police detective, and he helped. He had his own experience with taking on police corruption. I set up billboards and a website. I took out newspaper ads, including national ads in the New York Times and USA Today, and Frank Serpico allowed me to use his endorsement. When police take a life, should they investigate themselves? That's what the ad read. Finally, we began to get some movement. I was helped by a friendly Republican legislator, his name was Gary Byes, and a Democratic Assemblyman, uh, her name was Chris Taylor. We passed a law that made Wisconsin the first state in the nation to mandate at a legislative level that police-related deaths be reviewed by an outside agency. I need you to know that I'm not anti-cop, and I'm finding that many police want change as well. It was the good officers in the state of Wisconsin that supported our bill from the inside and it was endorsed by five police unions. And great job on that to uh, Alex and Robbie, and thanks so much to Michael Bell Sr. And condolences for your loss, first of all. I mean, what a thing to learn. And my goodness, we, we found out that the gun got caught in a mirror. Okay, so he thought someone was pulling at the gun, and he found out that's what happened. Why not just say that? It's okay, you made a mistake. You didn't do it on purpose. It's the cover-up that ruins everything, right? You didn't go out there to kill a kid, and you got to live with it. I mean, the cop who does this has to live with it his whole life an accident. But don't cover it up. The family deserves to know the truth. Everyone does. And you knew the truth. It's a great story, and it's why rule of law matters in everyone's life. And that Wisconsin passed this rule, making all deaths at the hands of an officer reviewable by an outside party. I'm so proud of the people of Wisconsin and to Michael Bell Sr. Michael Bell Sr.'s story, his son's story. A great legislative story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Tocqueville Lives segment, where we hear about the associations that ordinary Americans form each and every day to solve problems in their communities. And of course, to just plain all enjoy each other. And by the way, Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville came to this country to write about this grand experiment called democracy in the 19th century and came away with this book, a great book called Democracy in America. And he wrote extensively about the associations in this country. And I want to read for you a brief excerpt. And again, this is written in the 19th century. Quote, Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religious, moral, grave, futile, very general and very particular, immense and very small. Americans use associations to found seminaries, build inns, raise churches, distribute books, send missionaries. In this manner, they create hospitals, prisons, schools, and so much more. And today's Tocqueville Lives story comes from our own Joey Cortez. Brian Broadway started his own church in Claremont, Florida, outside the walls of a traditional church. Their original church of only about three families met out in the world, in a park where they could serve the needs of the homeless. And beyond their Sunday church service, they served the poor in a parking lot of a Winn-Dixie grocery store. So one of my first encounters was when I went to the the Winn-Dixie and I saw a car parked there and they would park there all day. They would park there earlier and later on that night. And I walked up to the people and I asked them if they needed anything. And they had a little girl sitting in the back seat. And they told me, no, we, we actually sleep here over the night. And then in the morning, we take my husband to work and then I, I stay here with, with their daughter. And the little daughter's in the back seat of the car and she's trying to get a light to read her book. And I'm just looking at it. that time, I've, I've got two daughters. And I'm looking at this cute little girl and I'm asking her questions and her name and she's telling me about her book. And I'm sitting there almost breaking down. Like, this is someone's child, and her concept of home, her concept of a place to be with her family is the backseat of a car. How does she invite a kid over to play when she lives from parking lot to parking lot? How does, how, how does she get her clothes clean? It was the first time that I actually realized that people's children call that home. That a child thinks that the current extent of her life is this backseat of this car. The child tonight at 1.30 in the morning with people walking around with will hear noises outside and be frightened because she's in the backseat of a car. But there is no air conditioning running. There is no vehicle running. The windows are cracked and someone can reach into it. That she has to live through that. There's a difference when they've been there for a while. It's like the light that's inside of them. The light that drives every child that you see in their eyes and their smile. It's like that light died out. It's like watching the death of hope side of somebody, you see it, it's different. And when you have a conversation with one of them, it's a life changer. Whether you have kids or not, you can have kids, you you might know a niece or a nephew, you might, if it's your child or your family, you would respond because you can tell the difference. And if we let that light stay out for too long, they're gonna stay that way. The life to them is gonna be a a group of people passing them by. The life to them is just looking at people to see who else passes me by and has no concern about my existence. I sat there and I spoke to them about a half an hour, and then something happened. When I 
when I got up to leave and I said goodnight and I walked away, I felt like I felt like I, I felt like I had a problem breathing. I felt like everything in me was stopped functioning. My body just wasn't functioning. I felt like I, I can't even explain it. It, 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 felt, it felt like dying. It felt like saying there's something happening and you're doing nothing and you're walking away. And after I walked away from that girl, I, I just I made a commitment. I said, I'm not walking away again without a plan. We have to come up with a plan. I'm not walking away from these children anymore. So then I, I got this idea and I named our outreach Find, Feed and Restore. And I figured if we can f- give them a foundation first, you know, if we find them a job, then where do you find them at? Well, we don't know where they live, where their car is parked, where they're going to be sleeping at. We don't, they don't have a foundation and it's hard to build a life or build anything when you don't have a foundation to start with. So to me, the first foundation is housing. How do we get them housing? How do we give them a foundation they can build from? When I moved to Florida, one of the first jobs I got, even though I had no experience in it, I got a general manager job over an RV company. And I was running their whole lot and running their technicians. And so I began learning about travel trailers. We rented travel trailers. That's what we did. Travel trailers, fifth wheels, motorhomes. So I'd go out at least for an hour and a half a day and I'd sit with a technician. And I'd learn everything about them. I'd learn how they function, how to use them. That some people lived them out lived them out here in the South. There was trailer parks and people lived in them. So then two years later, we're thinking of the outreach. And I'm like, wow, we can use travel trailers and give these people a home. I started researching how do you write grants? How do you get funds? And that's when I found out that uh, grant writers cost two to $3,000 to write a grant. So then I had another roadblock. How, how do I do that? I don't have two to $3,000 to pay someone to write a grant. And there's no guarantee you win the grant after they write it. What do I do from there? And then after about a few days, just praying and wondering, what can I do? I need funds, but I can't afford to get funds. And I can't get my first trailer. And then God gave me one word. I'll never forget it. I was sitting there at nighttime and he gave me one message. And the word was learn. And that was it. That's all I had. After days of praying, after days of hoping, I got one word, learn. So at nighttime, when I come home from work, I'd play with my kids. My, my wife goes to bed at 10 or 11. I would get on my computer from 11 o'clock to sometimes 2 in the morning. And I would Google, how do you write a grant? I would YouTube, how to write a grant, grant tips, grant techniques. And I took every free YouTube video and every free Google PDF that they had until I learned it. It took me almost a year and I learned it. First grant to everyone was a Walmart grant. I think it was $500. And you would have thought that I won half a million dollars. I was ecstatic. <laughs> I was was so happy. Um, It was just the biggest thing for me because it's like, wow, this has never happened. Um, So we won our first grant and I started winning grants from public supermarkets, from different foundations. Um, And I started winning grants until we got, so we got our first trailer. We had a visitor come to our church. A lady that was only coming for a few weeks visited us and said, listen, I have a family trailer that we use for vacations. And I left it in another state, but if you want it, you can have it. And she donated it with us. And we used the grant funds to tow it to get there. Um, and then when I started, I kept writing. And then I won a $1,000 grant. And then I won a $5,000 grant. Um, from 10000 to 20000 it kept climbing and escalating. Um, and from there, we built it up from the one trailer within two years, going from one trailer to eight trailers. And now eight trailers with duplexes. Um, but off of one word, that word was learn. But I'll never forget that never paid for a unit. We've all, they've always been donated for us. We just pay to upkeep them and keep them functioning. But Brian does much more than that too. He gives the families that join his program a vision and the tools to live a better life. 
When you come into our program, you live in the car. You don't have fresh food. You don't have anything. So when you come into a trailer, it's fully, it's fully stocked uh, from steak to sausage, uh, whatever it is you eat. We show them their units. We walk through how to maintain them and keep everything clean. We go over our process. We give you a, a life coach to help keep up with you and make sure that you're heading in the right direction. Uh, we do budgeting classes. Uh, we do meal planning. We do every, all the different services that we can do to help you get back on your feet according to the game plan we preset with you. They're allowed to stay there anywhere from six to eight months renting utilities free. And after six to eight months, they should be working and they'll get a bill for $200 a month for their rent and $50 a month for their electric. And they'll start paying those bills using the budgeting classes. They've learned things to budget their money and start paying the bills. After six to eight months, we hope to be able to get them into their own place, to get them into back into self-sufficiency where they own their own or, they ha- or they're out in their own apartment. Uh, we go over how to promote, get promoted at your job, putting forth your best effort, being on time, just some basic skills training. So that's our that's our main program goal: get get people from homeless to hopeful, into self-sufficient lifestyles. And our program has it's proven effective. The foundation first is key, or what they now call housing first, getting them into a safe place to have a foundation, and then wrapping all the services around them that they need to become self-sufficient. And we found that to be most effective. Next week we're going to a closing. A lady bought her own park model trailer, and she's closing on it next week. And we're actually going to take pictures. That lady lived about six or seven blocks away from our church. She lived in a blue Chevy Malibu with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And she lived there for four months with those kids. So to see her come from this to that, it's just, it's a life-changing, it's a life-changing event. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Brian Broadway, the pastor of Living Message Church in Claremont, Florida. And by the way, we know this is happening all over the country, beautiful stories like this. From churches, civic organizations, send them to us, civic organizations, send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Tocqueville Lives segment continues after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and to Brian Broadway's story. And I love that he had just mentioned a simple sentence, turning someone from homeless into hopeful. And again, no government help here, just a guy, a church, helping a person that was clearly in need of help. And again, Americans do this all the time, but our media, our press, well, they just like the train wreck. It's just what they do. And by the way, we like the train wreck too because we buy it. But here on our American stories, we don't do the train wreck. Uh, We do these kinds of stories because it represents who we are. Now let's return to Brian Broadway's story. For the past three years, from the trailers from last week to the trailers that's coming in two weeks, I cleaned them uh, with a team of another two or three people. So I've cleaned every single trailer we've had. So one thing with trailers is that trailers can't use regular toilet paper. They can't even use septic-safe toilet paper. They use what's called dissolvable toilet paper. It dissolves in water. 
You buy it at Walmart, but it's not in the toilet paper section. It's in the, tra the RV section, the auto section. You know, Walmart has that auto section across. You go to the auto section and they sell dissolvable toilet paper for RVs. Or you buy it from an RV store. So I, I try to, this is one of the things I tell people. And now I stock it. When someone, when someone comes to the trailer, I stock it for them. So a lady obviously didn't follow the instructions and she used regular paper. So I, she says the toilet's backed up. She goes, my kids just use the bathroom. There's poop coming above the top of the toilet. So it's about 11 o'clock at night. And I said, maybe I have to wait till tomorrow. She says, we'll sleep outside in the car. We can't take the, the smell. Um, we'll just we'll sleep outside. And my wife looks at me, she says, Brian, she has two, three kids, one with special needs. You have to go. So I'm like, you're right, I have to go. So I get up and I bring my plunger, I bring my normal stuff. And you can smell it from the outside of the trailer. And I walk into the trail. They sit outside. They want to sit in the smell. So the family, the wife, the, mom, the lady, her mom, and the three kids sit outside. It's pitch black. It's 1130 at night. I'm in there trying to get this thing unstuck. There's poop all on the top of it. So then I had to go to the store, buy buckets, and I had to take scoop the poop out and put it into a container. So then what I forgot is that you should open up the valves before you start in the bottom of the trailer to get the pressure out. I didn't think because I just wanted to get this thing done with. So I start pushing and putting my tools in there to try to push it through and the thing backsplashes and it shoots. <laughs> it shoots over my chest, over my chin. And, uh, and I I just react. I run outside. I take my shirt off. I run, I'm running around. I'm, like, oh my, I'm screaming. I'm running around and I turn around and I realize that there's the three kids sitting down in this bleacher watching me like a madman run around with no shirt on. <laughs> from this poop that just shot out on me. So that that was a lesson on making sure you release the pressure in the tanks by opening up the tubes uh, before uh, before <laughs> before trying to clean them out. So there are certain things that I learned along the way <laughs> when cleaning trailers. But I always say, e even with that, when you, you come out kind of messy, I still walked away saying, God, I thank you that I have life to serve. I had the arms and the strength to do it. I, one day I won't be able to do it anymore, but I thank you that today I had the ability to do it. No matter how messy it was, you let me do it. But uh, still lessons you learned along the way. <laughs> and Brian, well, he's learned some more serious ones too. When we first started, we didn't know as much as we know now. So we've added on more things. Number one, we didn't realize the, the huge impact of bullying. That most of these kids go to school wearing the same outfit they wore yesterday, they're not clean because they washed up in the gas station where they just washed their face in the sink and they're being bullied. And we did, we were not, when we first started, we didn't even think about that. So we had to introduce, add into child counseling. So we found child counseling experts in our area and we write grants to be able to afford it. But we, for the kids being bullied, uh, we bring them to child therapists so they can learn to overcome and be comfortable going back to school. Um, so there was, there's a lot of pieces that we add on as we've learned. Um, what the main things are. So the, the, the counseling for the children is huge. Um, for the teenagers, what, what are their goals? You got a teenager, let's figure out their goals. What are they doing after school? What are their plans? What are they working towards? So we, tr we do it for everyone to make sure that everyone has a game plan of what they want to achieve and what they're trying to do. A big goal for a big problem. According to Brian, the need in his community is anything but small. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's huge. It is astounding. It's astoundingly huge. Every nonprofit calls us for housing. Every church calls us for housings. 
I mean, we're, we're churches with 2,000, 3,000 members call us with their members for housing. For some context on this, Brian has a congregation of only about 125 members, and the churches with thousands of members call him. The amount of communities that live in the woods is huge, especially in Florida, because there's so many, there's so much woods. You can move mad with a tent and no one's even know you're there. But the demand is huge. The amount of calls we get from the school system is huge. The amount of calls we get from the police department, that's huge. The police department put together their own homeless task force now just to try to keep them safe and try to figure out ways they can stay. Um, so the, the need is huge uh, in our area and throughout most of a lot of Lake County. The need is indeed huge. But for those fortunate enough to get into Brian's program, there's also a huge impact. Earlier this year, it's just been some amazing success stories. We have a couple that just graduated, the one that's on their home, and they still, and they donate to the program monthly, which to me is huge. That's just incredible. One lady, she graduated her program, and she was pretty quick. She actually worked at one of the local hospitals. And so she was a professional and fell in a hard time. She was left, and she had three kids to tend to. And we got her into our program. We got her into subsidized childcare. We got everything set up for her. And then about maybe three and a half months to the program, she, she just called and she was excited. She said, thank you so much. I just got my own place. I'll be renting a home and um, I'll be done with the trailer by Friday. So we, you know, every time someone's done with a trailer, now some people leave you a, a nice trailer that's semi-clean. And some people are so excited that they rush out, they grab all their stuff and they just leave you all the mess. So you get both sides. So not knowing what we get, I go there with two or three people normally. So this time I went with two people. I brought all our cleaning supplies. We have our cleaning baskets set aside. And uh, we came in there and I opened the door and it smelled like lemons. I'm like, what is this? And I walked into the trailer. It was flawlessly cleaned. I mean, just unbelievably flawlessly clean. I was like, well, guys, we have nothing to do here. And then I went to the refrigerator. I said, well, let's clean the refrigerator out and then we'll, we'll, we'll get the next group and restock for them. I opened the refrigerator, and the refrigerator was full. And I opened the freezer, and the freezer was full. Not only was it full, every item, because I did the shopping for her, every item that I bought, she brought the same exact one and put it back, which means she actually wrote down everything I put in that refrigerator when she moved in. And the steak that I brought, she brought it back. I always buy a, a pack of sausage. I always buy an eight-pack of uh, chicken cutlets from the cook. She put an eight-pack back. She brought the same juice back. She put the bottled water back. She put the fruit back. Everything that I bought, she bought to the tea and put it all back in the refrigerator. Uh, this to the cereal, to the pasta, to the pasta sauces, to the canned beans that I bought. She bought every single item and put it back. And I was just so moved by that because no one has ever done that for us before. And what a story and what a voice. And that's Pastor Brian Broadway in Claremont, Florida. And again, Americans do this all over the country. We are a beautiful people. By the way, this story was brought to us by the Mortgage Family Foundation, and they've supported his work. And philanthropy, by the way, is another form of association in this great country. I wanted to close out right now with Brian talking about his favorite verse in the Bible and how it's been his source of inspiration. It's from Galatians. Let's take a listen as we close out here on Our American Stories. Grow not weary in well-doing, for if you grow not weary, you shall reap a reward in the end but tells me that doing well is to be a part of my everyday life and that the true reward is not what I get back on this earth. 
True rewards are what I get from God when my time is done. My time will end on this earth. One day the, the sun will set on my existence. But the good news is that I did the work. I ran the race. I didn't grow weary in doing well. What I was born for, I completed. And that's why that verse has so much value to me. Do what you were born for and complete it. Do it well. Don't quit when it gets hard. Don't quit when people tell you you can't make it. Don't quit when you get a no. No, you're not getting the money. No, we can't help you. No, you don't get the trailer. No, you're not getting this. Don't quit at the nose. Push through it. Don't grow weary in doing what is well, what is good, what is just, what is kind. The reward that you receive is greater in the end. So that's, that's just my favorite. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our story of a song. And we've done a bunch of these, and we love doing them. We did Georgia on My Mind, Light My Fire. Ray Manzarek walked us through that one. Another brick in the wall and how that song came to be. There Goes My Life. We heard the song performed by the guy who wrote that song and why he wrote that song. Very moving. Jesus Take the Wheel, and our favorite here at Our American Stories, Gimme Shelter. And those background tracks, that one lone African-American female backup singer adding this haunting element that makes the song. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear any and all of our stories of a song. And today, it's Chris Christopherson's Why Me? And this is one of the great writers, a terrific actor too, an all-around man's man, ladies' man, everybody loved and loves Chris Christopherson. And my goodness, me and Bobby McGee alone get you there. He wrote that. And Sunday morning, coming down. Why Me was recorded by Christofferson in 1972. And it was his lone major country hit as a solo recording artist, reaching number one on the Billboard magazine Hot Country Singles charts in 1973. Here, Chris Christofferson tells the story of exactly why and how he came up with that song back in the 1970s. And it had a lot to do with Larry Gatlin and his song and the type of music that Larry was recording at the time. We've been down in Cookville with a bunch of people doing a benefit for, uh, for Dottie West's uh, high school band or something. Then uh, Connie uh, took me over to, to church the next day to, to Jimmy Snow's church. Uh, I, I had a profound uh, religious experience uh, during during uh, the the uh, session, something that I hadn't never had happened to me before, and uh, and uh, why me came out of it. Everybody was kneeling down, and uh, and uh, Jimmy said uh, uh, something like, "If if anybody's lost, please raise their hand." And I was I was kneeling there, and I don't go to I don't go to church a lot, and uh, and uh, the notion of raising my hand was uh, out of out of the question, <laughs> and I thought uh, I I can't imagine who's doing this, and all of a sudden I felt my hand going up, and I was hoping nobody else was looking because everybody was 
had their head over, bend over uh, praying, and then he said, uh, if, if anybody's ready to accept Jesus, something like this, uh, come down to the front of the, of the church. And uh, uh, I thought that would never happen. And uh, and uh, I found myself getting up and walking down with all these people and going down there. And, and I don't really know what he said to me. He said something to me like, are you ready to accept uh, Jesus Christ in your life or something? And I said, I don't know. I, I didn't know what I was doing there. And he put me down. He <laughs> said, kneel down here. And, and he... Uh, I, I can't even remember what he was saying, but whatever it was, was such a release for me that I, I find myself weeping in public, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, I felt the, this uh, forgiveness that I didn't that I didn't know I even needed. Then Christofferson in this small group with some musicians. By the way, one of them was next to him. His name's Willie Nelson. They performed the song. Why me, Lord? What have I ever done To deserve even one Of the pleasures I've known Tell me, Lord did I ever do That was worth loving you Or the kindness you've shown Lord, help me, Jesus I've wasted it so Help me, Jesus I know why And there have been a whole bunch of people who've recorded this song. Elvis Presley among them. He incorporated it into his set with the song Why My Lord back in 1974 in January and then right up until his last concert tour. It was first released on the live album Elvis recorded live on stage in Memphis. The recording is from his March 20, 1974 concert in Memphis, Tennessee. He often introduced the song for J.D. Sumner, to sing one of his favorite songs. Sumner would sing the verses, and Elvis would then join in the chorus. Let's take a listen. Thank you. I'd like to ask J.D. Sumner to stay up to sing one of my favorite songs, Why Me, Lord? Did I ever do to be 
And the favorite version here at Our American Stories involves two of our favorites from two very different walks of life, two different styles of music, the great Johnny Cash and the great Ray Charles. And with that, another story of the song, Chris Christopherson's song, you heard Elvis do it. My goodness, so many people did. Let's listen to Ray and let's listen to Johnny do it. me, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings I've known? Why me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth love from you and the kindness you've shown? Wasted it, so help me, Jesus. I know what I am. What I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus. My soul's in your hand. This is our American stories, the story of a song. And this one, Why Me, by Chris Christopherson. And let's take it back. Gospel being at the root of so much of American music. Let's listen to Ray Charles play those keyboards and hear Johnny Cash take it out. This is Our American Stories. Try me, Lord, if you think there's a way that I can repay what I've taken from you. Maybe, Lord, I could show someone else what I've been through myself on my way back to you. My 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories of people performing random acts of kindness. We often have that segment here on our show, and very often it's produced and wrapped up and narrated. But we felt like this story needed more personal attention. Not that the others aren't personal, but this one, we just wanted to talk to the parties and have you hear this story yourselves from them and Diazerome suffers from cerebral palsy, a movement condition that makes it very hard for her to walk on her own. So six fraternity brothers from the University of Central Arkansas decided to be her legs for a day. They carried her up a thousand-foot mountain. They each took turns giving her piggyback rides until they got to the top. Diage is here with us today to talk about this experience, and also one of the brothers, one of those fraternity brothers, Benji Richards, thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. You're so welcome, man. You bet. And Diaja, let's start with you. Um, You obviously wanted to see the top of this mountain. You wanted to get to the top. Why did you want to do that and talk about what what it felt like to get this offer from these from these fraternity boys? You know, I just seen all the pictures. You know, the people locally around um, Arkansas and Conway. <laughs> I've just seen all the pictures on Instagram, you know, Facebook, everybody, the joys of getting to the top, you know. That was something I wanted to do. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, nothing's going to stop me from, um, from doing this and something that I want to do just because I have a disability doesn't mean that I can't do something that everybody else does. And just to get the opportunity from these guys to climb this mountain, I was overjoyed. I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, let's do it. Did you know these uh, fraternity brothers? Yes. Um, actually, um, my um, I met them through like a wiffle ball tournament that we had. Um, it was pretty cool. Um, in the middle, like, um, I'm in the middle team with them, and we just played softball. And uh, that was how we met. And, I, of course, I had seen them around campus and things like that. So I was just like, yeah, man, I already know these guys, and I've developed some trust, so why not? Let's do it. Yeah, you got to have some trust in somebody who's carrying you up a mountain, Diaja. And uh, Benji, Benji, talk about uh, how you ca- had come to know Diaja uh, and talk a bit about uh, your fraternity as well and the brothers and how this idea came to fruition. Um, well, we, like Diaja said, we met her through um, with, uh, some intramurals, uh, a co-rec wiffle ball tournament we had on our campus. Um, and so our fraternity was teamed up with her sorority. And um, we uh, and Diaja was actually on our team. And so... She pulled up in her wheelchair and was even batting uh, on the team. So that that's how we actually met her, and so we were all kind of impressed. We're like, okay, you know, like, she's not going to let anything stop her. Um, now, how the idea came about is we had actually seen a chapter for a different fraternity do this up in the Northeast. Um, there was a post that had been shared where they had a brother that also had um, cerebral palsy, and they carried him. And... I can't remember if the idea started with myself or um, Cesar Ramirez, but one of us was just like, hey, what if we did this? And then uh, I remember pushing the idea to um, some of the members that I knew, 
in her sorority, and eventually just they got the baby D, and she was like, yeah, let's do it. So we set up a time to go. And we love doing these segments because, well, the media loves to cast millennials in a certain light, young people in a certain light, and I live in a college town, and I've never been more impressed by a generation, and I hate seeing older people looking at younger people and saying, ah, back when we were better kids, life was better, and you all stink. I mean, that's just what older people always do to younger people, but I've witnessed quite the opposite, and the same with fraternities, who especially after that terrible UVA story at the Rolling Stone sort of cast all fraternities as just, well, something they're not. And talk a little bit about uh, Diaja, your experience with this fraternity and these brothers, because, my goodness, what a story. And how did, how did it make you feel? And then how did you set about going to do this, Diaja? Um, it made me feel awesome, you know, just that um, a group of guys, you know, just wanted to do this for me out of, out of the compassion of their hearts. You know, it's, um, I was, I posted on Facebook yesterday, I was like, it's the smallest things in life um, that make individuals happy and bring about the greatest amounts of happiness. <laughs> so just for these guys to like, you know, spend some time out of their day to actually, you know, help this little, this little goal of mine, this little dream of mine to come true and, you know, um, give away some um, some sweat and some muscle to do this for me. It was just awesome. I can't words can't even describe. When I got to the top, I was like, "Wow!" And Benji, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother ball game up there. It is, and you know, you said something so wonderful, and that is, in the end, it's something we try and talk about regularly on this show. If you want to really go after social justice in this country, do something really radical. Help a total stranger. Do something wonderful and beautiful for another person. And if we all did that every day, we would have social justice coming at us so darn fast. So darn fast in every way, shape, and form. Benji, talk about how hard it was, or not hard it was, to enlist a bunch of guys to do this. Give me just a short answer here. We're going to come back on the other side of the break and then talk about the actual walk. Um. Honestly, it was really simple. I just mentioned to a few of the guys, and they said, let's do it. Uh, there wasn't really any challenge to it. Um, so I was just like, hey, we're going to carry uh, Aja up this mountain. And they're like, all right, let's go. Just tell me in time. Well, hold that thought. And by the way, that's why I knew it would be a short answer, because that's the American spirit, frankly. There's no committees. There's no Grand Cuba calling the shots. A couple of guys go, hey, let's help this beautiful young lady. Let's let her live her dream. And you just went and did it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of a fraternity brother and a sorority sister, and these brothers and sisters coming together to achieve a dream. Well, actually, a whole bunch of dreams, actually. Because when we live other people's dreams, through them and with them, we live our own. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Benji Richards, 
and Diaja Romes. And this is a story from the University of Central Arkansas. A young lady with cerebral palsy wanted to climb a mountaintop. And some fraternity brothers said, what the heck, let's do this. And so they did it. And Benji, I want to go to you. First of all, what's the name of your fraternity? Give a shout out to the fraternity. I know that matters a lot to you all. And then what did you what did you do? Talk about what steps you took and then talk about this climb. Um, well, I'm part of Phi Gamma Delta or uh, Fiji, um, as we're commonly known as, um, at University of Central Arkansas. And um, in terms of the steps that we took to make it happen, um, really we, we set a time and a date to go and meet there, and like I collected a few of the guys. Um, the only really outside planning we did was we spent a lot of time discussing how we were going to carry Diaja. Um, there was, that was an interesting discussion. We went through different things about trying to figure out how to like bring her to our back and finally ended up settling on just, we'll just piggyback ride her the entire way up. So, or give her a piggyback ride the entire way up. And so what did you do? Switch, switch up, just go from guy to guy. How did you do it? Um, yeah, so we would just, uh, I think I took the first leg and you just start going right up the mountain. Um, and then, Honestly, a lot of us were football players, so this kind of was similar to us as if we were just doing, we were back in uh, the football team just working out doing lunges, but after a while we would, you know, kind of wear out and need a break. We would find a, like a tall standing rock that we could set her on where we wouldn't have to squat down and set her on the ground, and then we would just kind of trade her around like that. And so you, you had how many fellas with you on this walk? I want to say about six. About six. And again, all members of Fiji as well, correct? Yeah. Great. And Diaja, so you, you, get the, you get the call from these guys, and then you realize you're going to be piggybacked up a mountain. Were you a little worried at first? Um, honestly, um, just the type of person I am, I was like, no, nah, man, um, I'm not worried at all. Of course, there were a couple times where I was like, Oh crap! I might like we might go down, but we're going down together. Yep, so, you're going down together. <laughs> That's some great. of the rocks were, were slippery, but I was like, no man, we're a team. We got this. If if one goes down, we all go down. And and let's talk about as you're going up that mountain and you're getting up to the top. Uh, talk about that moment when you get to the top of the mountain, Diasha. Uh, we were about a couple feet away from the top, and I was. I was getting anxious. I was like, man, is it really like the pictures? Like, is everybody just hyping this up for no reason? But um, when we got to the top, you know, it was it was pretty hot because we, we um, started coming up in the middle of the day but um, and all sweating and stuff. But I was like, wow, the sky is like limitless up here. I feel like I can literally do anything from the top of this mountain. I could scream at the top of my lungs and, like, nobody, like, the sky was listening, you know? It's kind of like when land meets the sky, you didn't you didn't really know where the um, the line was drawn. That's beautiful. So awesome. That's beautiful. You have, and if you could, we'd love to have you send a, a, I'm sure you took some pictures. Send them to our team here, and we'll post them up on the website. Uh, because we can't wait to see them. And so, Benji, you, you, you get up to the top of the mountain. You've never climbed a mountain with a person on your back before. How did it make you feel? Because, I, I, you know, we have the deep feeling on this show that when you do well for others, 
Uh, it, it makes you feel better than doing for yourself. Yeah, uh, it was definitely um, pretty exhilarating. Uh, it was really rewarding um, to get her all the way up there. She was really excited. We were a little tired, um, honestly. But, uh, you know, getting up there, you kind of, we hit our second wind. We got that, sec- uh, that rush of energy because um, Daza was so um, excited to be up there and, you know, she, you, you're listening to her talk about what it was like and trying to describe it. And that you can imagine that her physical reaction of her just being like, oh, look at all this. It's so cool. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a very rewarding experience being able to get her up there. Now, I heard you guys are planning to do this again. Yes. So we've, we've actually already taken her on two trips since. Um, we were trying to plan one this December, but uh, everyone's back home, so it made it a little difficult. Um, but we actually went to Petty Jean State Park, um, and that's a park here that has a, a waterfall. Um, and we actually got her in the waterfall because she said she wanted to be in it. So that was it involved um, two of us putting her in a chair and swimming her across a pool to get her to the waterfall. Um, and then we took her to Mount Magazine and we hiked her up to the highest or the tallest elevation um, in the state of Arkansas also. Oh, so you got yourself a real hiking partner there, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and uh, Diaja, for all the folks who, and we, we do this often here on the show, talk about folks with disabilities, because we, we, we think and deeply believe that all people are children of God and that, well, you know, there's nothing anyone can, can or can't do except what's in their own mind. Talk to all the folks listening to may have, who may have relatives who have cerebral palsy, or suffer from some other uh, 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 some other uh, calamity that occurred early in their life, but that they overcame. That they overcame. Talk about them. Talk to them directly about that, Diaja, if you could. Yeah, you guys. It can be hard sometimes, you know, um, having a disability and getting um, stereotyped. Oh, you can't do this, or you can't do that. Well, I'm living, breathing proof. Um, that they, the disabled are indeed able and can achieve, achieve great things if you just put your mind to it and, you know, grit and bear it and get down and actually do what you want to do, put those people wrong and, um, you know, just have fun. Um, you know, having a disability has its ups, has its downs, but at the end of the day, you just have to believe that you really want to do something and have the diligence to get it done and have fun, you know. It's all about the happiness in life and getting um, getting as much of it as you can out of life. I mean, because life is short. You can't really wait around um, for someone to do something for you. you got to get out and do it if you really want it. Um, just go for it, man. Yeah, we think here, and we often bump into what I call the bigotry of low expectations, and that is the second somebody has some kind of problem, we set the bar lower on those people, and that's the worst thing to do to folks. Um, And you have set the bar high on yourself, Diaja, and I'm so happy that you not only not see yourself as a victim, but that you are going to live a beautiful and valuable life. And Benji... Talk about what this has done for the fraternity uh, and what it's done for you personally. I, I'd, I'd love to get that, that angle of this story. Um, I definitely think for the fraternity it became a point of pride. Um, different guys have been 
involved in everything. Um, I know, for example, when we did the Pettyjean trip and a bunch of guys realized they couldn't get off work to make it, um, a lot of guys got uh, upset about it. Um, and so it's definitely become something that's like when we can get enough guys to actually plan a sufficient trip, um, they get excited about it. Um, so that's uh, been pretty great. What, and what was the second question? And for you, what did it do for you personally in terms of uh, doing this kind of, just performing this kind of just act of kindness? Um, well, for, for me personally, it was just uh, rewarding. Um, like I said, taking her up there and seeing her get really excited. But um, I think something else that happened um, was after the story went, uh, the story got some attention. Um, and after that happened, um, I uh, was actually receiving emails from uh, graduate brothers or alumni of our fraternity that have um, daughters or sons with cerebral palsy, and they were telling me how they appreciate this, how it means a lot. Um, I've actually met a graduate brother here in the Little Rock area um, that has a daughter with cerebral palsy, and he just talked about how um, it really means a lot, and it really sticks to what our fraternity is supposed to be when we do things like this. So um, to me, it's meant quite a bit. Well, what a great story, and thank you, Diaja, for coming on, and thank you, Benji, as well. It's our random act of kindness story of the week, and we do these every week. And this is as good as it gets. And for anybody who's listening and has an idea or a judgment about this generation, I promise you there are stories after stories. I know here at Ole Miss, I watch what the young people do in terms of charity drives, raising money for, for, for the poor, raising money for kids, teaching literacy. I'm humbled to see those, those young people do what they do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, thank you, Benji. Thank you, Diazer, for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. You bet, and uh, Godspeed to both of you. And by the way, if you want to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. It's written and hosted by Ted Bolliker. Sacre Bleu! The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world, and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines, but it's been a tough sell. Say hello to Gallo, hello to Gallo wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag. This champagne doesn't come from France. Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take two. 
Ah, French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get ripple. American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noël Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the hamburger is not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty France versus lowly California in a blind taste test judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs. They would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. Well, it's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a, a, a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? <laughs> How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way. Different when I came from communism, where it was not freedom. <laughs> I have used American opportunity. Gergich was raised in a small village in Croatia. He developed a taste for wine at a very young age. To be honest, my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine. And I liked when Gergich arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place. I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people are trying to compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything. That's just that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gergich's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly. The French were interested to understand what was going on in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder, given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery and he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. And that, of course, put us on the map, uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to 1980, America has never been the land 
of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formo headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? An atmosphere of innovation. And because of that, America has been able to create anything that have changed really the way wine is made today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation, a process Gergich helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's extremely difficult in France compared to here that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules. Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance. I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment. What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California. Here I felt free and I could be successful, and that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't done in France. But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game. And that means better wine for all of us. This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com. And the piece was called Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Bleu. Sacre Bleu! And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise, and just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding or credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines, not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we sent our interns on a tour of the American South, and naturally a trip down the South is not complete without looking into the wonderful culinary culture located down where we live, just south of Memphis. And one of the places they went specializes in the history of Southern food and beverage. Here's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern, with a look into the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage. According to anthropologists, people who study human culture, food is not just an essential component for survival. It is a mode of language and rhetorically represents a culture, country, or even a city. We call this kind of food cuisine, and out of all the cities in the United States, New Orleans has perhaps the most recognizable one. And at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, this is abundantly clear. My name is Liz Williams, and I'm the director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum here in New Orleans. The anthropologist Sidney Mins defined cuisine, and he said cuisine was food that everyone in a region recognizes, everyone feels they know about, and everyone of every class eats. So if everyone is eating it, whether you're the highest class or the lowest class, that really lets you know that it is cuisine and people's identity and the way they think about themselves is all related to the food. We probably are the only place that has a real cuisine. Every other part of the South has dishes that are things that they ate and that are identified with them, but I think Louisiana has cuisine in the way that, say, Italy has cuisine or whatever, and people always complain that the food in New Orleans from place to place is always the same and it's like saying there's too much pasta in Italy or something, you know. In many regions of the world, cuisine is a staple of one cultural group, Italian, Chinese, Indian, French. Each of these showcases an important aspect of identity for people living in that culture. But there is something truly different about New Orleans cuisine. Nobody can claim a true ownership over it. One of the reasons that I think that we have a cuisine here rather than just have ethnic groups who were just coming together is that we were founded by the French in 1718. At the time all of this was happening here in Louisiana, the French were developing the restaurant and the French were developing cuisine, the haute cuisine that we now think of as French cooking. So all of the people who settled here from France had that mindset in their heads when they got here. And so when they were interacting with the native people who already had a way of cooking, they were bringing the idea of cooking here. So they were happy to learn about all of the foods that were here and learn about how they could be cooked and then they brought their own aesthetic to it. So then you have the Spanish who came later, but now you've got this settled population of people from France. So the Spanish come, they have had um, moors in Spain for hundreds of years. So because of that, they've begun to really use spices in a way that France hadn't. So they wanted a fi more fiery food, plus, here you are in, in the Americas and you're finding that not only are there spices that are being brought in, but there are chilies here. 
And so that gives you another level of spices. So the Spanish come, they bring their spices, they bring their taste for rice, they bring certain things that weren't actually here yet. They're literally bringing rice over. So that, that's also part of it. And then you have the enslaved Africans who bring a taste for rice and beans together. Uh, actually, they were rice and peas because in Africa they were peas, not rice, not, not beans. Here we had beans and so they just substituted beans for peas. So all of these things start to come together because the French are just absorbing it all. And so it's not that they had the strongest influence on the actual methodology of cooking or the ingredients or whatever. It was just that they were fusing it together. And then you have here in Louisiana, you have Germans. They were bringing a sausage making tradition. Um, they also were the bakers. There also was a bit of necessity on the part of the original settlers of New Orleans that drove the mass cultural melting pot of food that would eventually become New Orleans cuisine. The French who were first settling here were vagabonds and uh, they were being taken out of prisons. And so they were like pickpockets and people in debtors prison and things like that. They weren't like major criminals. They were just, that's why I'm calling them vagabonds. But they also didn't have any skill. I mean, if you make your living as pickpocket, you probably don't know how to make a loaf of bread. So they had to bring in people who had those skills in order to actually be settled. So the Germans brought that. They brought the sausage-making traditions. New Orleans is an old city, and by the time the United States of America gained the Louisiana Territory, there was an established food culture. But another massive wave of immigration was about to happen from two other groups, one of which most people would probably not associate with New Orleans. So then in the 19th century, we became American. That meant all these Americans came down and they had all of their own food ways that got incorporated in. And then you had a bunch of Sicilians come. We had probably the largest Sicilian immigration in the entire country. And uh, they took over the French Quarter. It was called Little Palermo. They say that outside of Palermo, the largest population of uh, Sicilian dialect speakers was here in New Orleans and of course they're bringing pasta the interesting thing is of course tomatoes were from uh, the Americas the tomato went back with Columbus was adopted by southern Italy totally transformed the cuisine of southern Italy and then they developed the uh, the habit and the technique of canning their tomatoes so that they had tomatoes all year. They bring back the concept of using canned tomatoes in their food. Because we grew so many tomatoes here that we always had fresh tomatoes, so we weren't canning tomatoes wasn't a big thing. So I think it's interesting that tomatoes came from here, went back to Italy, and then came back. It's just one of those interesting little tidbits. And so then the Sicilian food came here, our snowballs, our practice of stuffing vegetables with, um, with uh, breadcrumbs instead of rice, things like that, which is a southern thing is rice in your stuffings. But here we do it with breadcrumbs, and that was all the Sicilian influence. Even today, New Orleans cuisine continues to evolve and bring new groups into the mix, leading to some very interesting food developments. 
So then we had the big uh, influence of the uh, post-Vietnam War when we had so many people from Vietnam come to New Orleans and now we call banh mi Vietnamese po'boys and you can get a banh mi with fried oysters and pate you know because it's all mixed together and then after Hurricane Katrina in the beginning we had so many people from Mexico come here because they were helping to rebuild the city and so you've got oyster tacos and all kinds of things that were never heard of in Mexico that we were eating and that we are still eating. And so if you can cook well and your cuisine is interesting, come sit by me because we're going to creolize it. And the cuisine of New Orleans has an interesting twist to it. The cuisine hasn't come out of the restaurant, but rather the homes of everyday people living there. So let's talk about something like gumbo. If you ask anybody in New Orleans, where do you get the best gumbo? Nobody is going to tell you a restaurant. Everyone is going to say, at my house or my grandmother's house or something like that, because it's home cooking. It's not restaurant food. And everyone recognizes other people's gumbo. So if I ate at your house and your family fixed gumbo, I would recognize that I was eating gumbo, but it would taste different than the gumbo in my house. And I might learn something from your family's gumbo and take that home, and then that might have my gumbo adapt. And this sharing of the food, everyone recognizing it, even though everybody's is different, is something that is really, really an essential aspect of cuisine. Even though the cuisine differs from household to household, that doesn't mean that it splits people apart. It actually brings them together. Another thing that's really important about cuisine is that everyone's opinion is actually respected. So a friend of mine and I did an experiment where we dressed up a lot, carried briefcases in a big high-rise building, and we rode in the elevator. Now you know the protocol for riding, riding in an elevator where you face the door and nobody talks? Well, we decided as we would go into the elevator that we would say to each other, where do you think the best po'boy is? And that started a conversation. And no matter who was on the elevator, people felt that they had a right to participate in that conversation. And it didn't matter, everybody felt the right to enter into the conversation. That is kind of proof positive that we have a real cuisine. And you listen to people talk about food on the bus, and you listen to people talk about food everywhere, and people want to know, you know, do you sweat your green peppers before you put them in your gumbo, or do you put them in raw and let them cook inside? All the little nuances of it. It's like everybody wants to know. And nobody thinks that because you're not educated or because you're poor or because you're old or young or whatever that you don't know. Everybody knows. And great job, Monty. And by the way, for my money and my brides, Johnny's is the best place to get a po' boy, and I had to add that in. I got married in Orleans with my wife and love the city. We visit often as a family. Great job to Monty, and thanks to Liz Williams of the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage and Liz Williams' book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Pick it up at Amazon. This is Our American Stories. <laughs> 